Amen. We do have reasons to rejoice. Amen. The Bible says, this is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. It is a joy to be here today. Just like Elder Bohr mentioned this morning during the first service, though he lived here and ministered here, he, he only attended the village church once. Well, I have to say that, frankly, honestly, I never attended the village church. But only because I was also a pastor, you see. And so I had my own congregations to have to minister to. But during my years here in, in Michigan... God really blessed me and my family. I have some milestones in, in my ministerial journey that, were, that took place here in Michigan. And so it's a very uh, special honor to be here and to be able to, even more, be able to open the word of God with you and seek God's word for us today. It was Mark Twain who once said, there are the two most important days in your life is the day you were born and the day you found out why. My message today borrows the concept that Simon Sinek introduced some years ago, but we're going to look at it from an evangelistic and biblical perspective. My sermon title this morning is starting with a prophetic why. As we begin, let's bow our heads together as we seek God's presence. Father in heaven, thank you so much that you've brought us here today. This is the day that you have made for us to gather together, to press together, to find encouragement and strength in Christ together as a people, as your redeemed People And we pray, Lord, that as we open your word, as we, as we think about concepts that we may have never thought before, I pray that the Holy Spirit would be the one who speaks, who makes things clear in our minds, that convicts our hearts, so that we leave this place with more, even more conviction than when we first came. So thank you, Lord, for answering our prayer. In Jesus' name, amen. I am a fifth-generation Seventh-day Adventist. In fact, it's quite a legacy because it was Frank Westfall. Does that name around sound familiar to some of you? Frank Westfall, here's some Adventist Bible or Adventist trivia. Frank Westfall was the first ordained minister to be sent to the continent of South America as a missionary. And Frank Westfall introduced my family five generations ago into the Adventist church, and they accepted the Adventist message and were baptized as one of the first Adventist converts in the continent of South America. This was in 1894, and five generations later, here I am, preaching that same message that my ancestors, my family heard for the first time many, many decades ago. When I was baptized at the early age of nine years old, I believed what I was taught. Hook, line, and sinker. As a nine-year-old, I, I understood. 
I understood the biblical teachings. I understood what was taught. I completed the answers to the questions of the study guide, La Fe de Jesus, the faith of Jesus. And, and I completed that. In fact, my parents still have the original Fe de Jesus that I hand-wrote myself as a nine-year-old to complete the study so that I could be baptized. After all, my father was my pastor. And so I was taught well. My, my uncle, in fact, was also a pastor. My great uncle was the conference evangelist. So as you can see, I was surrounded by very qualified teachers as I grew up in the Adventist church. And as a PK, otherwise known as a pastor's kid, I, I experienced a childhood that informed me quite well about what we believe. In fact, my father, and this was, this was, you know, this was all new stuff. In, in the mid-80s, my dad would use three projector screens, big ones, and, and he would use three carousel projectors there in the middle of the church, and and what he would do is he would preach, and, and as he preached, when he had to advance the slides, he would snap his fingers. And I must have been eight, nine, ten years old, and I was sitting behind the carousel projectors, and I was just completely focused. You have to understand, this was cutting-edge stuff, uh, multi-production. And, and I was focused because when those fingers snapped, that was my cue to advance the slides. And so I, I was all focused, and I would snap, snap, click, 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 click. And I did this for whew, countless Bible seminars. You get the idea. By the time I finished high school, I had my share of listening to Bible prophecy seminars, as I'm sure some of you have too. After all, we are a people of the book. We have a message to preach. Can you say amen to that? There is a message that nobody else is preaching that needs to be heard, and, and we know that well. We know that well. We have several media ministries that, that proclaim the word. We preach the word. But let me fast forward now. I completed my high school. I graduated from high school, and I headed to Tennessee, where I enrolled as a student at Southern University of Seventh-day Adventist, as it, was, as it was called during that time. And I moved into the dormitory called Taj Hall. But it was during that freshman year. As a student there, ironically enough, as you'll notice here in a moment, I, I was the, a theology student. I had, a, I had gone to several Mexico mission trips during high school, and in that context, I sensed a calling to ministry. My dad had exposed me to quite a bit of pastoral ministry, and so, so I, I sensed that calling myself. And so as a theology major there at Southern, I'll never forget the day that my parents dropped me off, literally. You see, my dad was, at the time, had accepted a call to the Philippines, so they left me at Southern, and, and then within days, they were 
flying out to the Philippines to the other side of the world, and there I was left alone. And during my freshman year, I have to tell you, I found myself wrestling with some rather disturbing thoughts. I know that I must not be alone. Somebody understands what I may have gone through. But let me give you a little context to understand what was going on in my life at that time. You see, I was now formally, formally an independent adult. I was now 18 years old, and for the first time, I was living alone for the first time in my 18 years of existence. I no longer lived in the shadow of my father, the only pastor I ever knew. Consequently, I had always been known as the PK or the pastor's son. Hey, there he is. There's the pastor's son. Hey, fellas, he's here. You know, you know, you know how it goes. Uh, Bible trivia, Bible competition. Oh, I was number one draft pick. Everyone wanted me on their team. Why? Because he's the PK. He's the pastor's kid. And this was what I, this was my world for 18 years, but not anymore. That was long gone. I was now on my own, and I stepped out of my family's pastoral bubble, so to speak, and entered into unsupervised world in which I would not, no longer be identified as a PK. And now I begin to wonder, as a young adult, something that, frankly, it scared me because I was being actually asking myself questions that I never thought I would be asking myself. And I asked myself, why do I continue to be a Seventh-day Adventist? Not necessarily that I doubted what I believed. Very few do. In fact, what we believe could very well be the clearest things in our mind. What we believe. After all, we, we, we glean from the scriptures the principles and teachings that are found in the Bible and the Bible only. That's not a question for many people. Uh, the Bible's teachings can be very clear and very easily understood. That was not the question. I was not concerned about what I believed. As many of us aren't either. We, we know, we know the fundamental beliefs. We know what they are. We know all 28. We, we know what the various prophetic interpretations are. We know what the distinct doctrines are. Indeed, we know who we are. We're Seventh-day Adventists. And as Adventists, believers of the Advent, we know what the timing and manner of Christ's second coming is. We know that the same Jesus will return in like manner, audibly, literally, gloriously, visibly. We know that. And we know that when he returns, it will be the end of the world as we know it. He's not going to rapture uh, those who are not redeemed um, in secret while those who are left behind... Um, have a second and third chance to repent? No, no, no. We know, we know what the Bible teaches. As Seventh-day Adventists, we know. We go to church on the seventh day of the week. Why? Because we know what day the true Sabbath is. We know that. 
And many students of prophecy, and I would add evangelists of Bible prophecy, Bible-believing Christians, oh, many of us, if not all, we can articulate which prophecies have or have not been fulfilled. We know, we know what method of biblical interpretation was used to reach those conclusions. We know, and as a result, we know all the dates and prophetic calculations. In fact, at Seventh-day Adventist, we draw the very best last-day events charts, and we know, we know what we believe when it comes to prophecy. We preach it far and near. But here's the question that I'm getting at right now. This is the question. While we know what we believe and what we do, do we know why they matter? Do we, we know, do we know why it matters? Do we know why we do what we do? Why? Why? Have we been on autopilot by default? We do what we do, but, but do we know why? Less and less members in good and regular standing do. No one walks away, or very few do, because they have a fundamental disagreement with what they have believed as Seventh-day Adventists. Some do, but not all. Most of those that no longer walk among us are those that never wholeheartedly, sincerely came to ask themselves the question, why does all this even matter? Why do I believe what I believe? The why has gotten a little fussy. When Adventist pastor believes that prophetic preaching has produced a tilted version of Christianity, I'm even starting to wonder if some of our very own preachers have gotten the why a little fuzzy in their minds. And I've come to conclude this. That if we don't ask ourselves and answer the question sincerely, why, why do I believe what I believe? What's my purpose? What's the cause? What's my core belief? There but for the grace of God go I. All people, and especially Young adults, especially those who are coming out of their bubble, so to speak, those who have been born and raised, hearing it every week, week in and week out, having lived in the shadow of their parents' faith, must ask the question, why does it matter that I'm a Seventh-day Adventist in the 21st century? Why do we do what we do? Why should prophecy make a difference for me? Why does it matter? And collectively, now as a church, do we really know with conviction why prophecy has a place in evangelism? Why prophecy has a place in our message as Seventh-day Adventists? Yes, we know what we know, what we do, what we believe. The fussiest thing is why. And before we go any further with this, I, I want to make one thing clear. By why, I don't mean to baptize people and, and make them members of the Seventh-day Adventist Church. That's a result. That's, that's not where we're headed. By why, I mean what's our purpose? 
What's our cause? Why do we exist as Seventh-day Adventists? And are we just one of many denominations? A survey was done in an Adventist academy. It was before a week of prayer. And the question was asked to the students, what is a Christian? Go ahead. Here's a three-by-five card. Here's your pen. Write, write us just a nice, concise statement. What is a Christian? Mind you, these are young people, high school age. And when all the responses were tallied, they discovered that 98% of responses included things like this. Someone who does what is right. Someone who doesn't get into trouble. Someone who pays tithe. Someone who goes to church. Someone who doesn't dress immodestly. Someone who reads the Bible. Someone who prays. Someone who fasts. What did you notice? Did, did you catch the theme, the common thought here? Answers are focused on, on, on what you should do and what you shouldn't do if you want to be a Christian. Where did they get that from? Not from the Bible. That's not a biblical definition of a Christian. It's not based on mere behavior. Mere behavior does not determine whether or not you're a Christian. Why? Because, frankly, you can be all that. You can be someone who is nice and good and well-behaved and law-abiding person who conforms to the, to the norms of society that are moral and ethical. You can be, you can be a well-disciplined person who does well in the community. You're well-known for your good acts of kindness, etc. But an atheist can do that too. I suppose if the question had been asked, what is the Seventh-day Adventist, the responses would have been of the same kind. Someone who goes to Vespers on Friday nights and go to, goes to church on Saturday mornings. Uh, someone who's a vegetarian, if not a vegan. One who follows the counsels of Ellen G. White. One who has a library of religious books. Um, ones who eat, one, someone who eats haystacks. Let's, let's make sure that's in the list. But to get the idea, it's what you do or don't do that defines you as a Christian. Basically, according to the popular belief, to be a Christian... What you need to do is to be a nice, good, well-behaved, law-abiding person and conform to the rules. Again, that's the good things you do or the bad things you don't do. But frankly, as I said, that's uninspiring. It's just uninspiring. Because even a good atheist can do that too. Heyman Metzoff. He's known as America's friendliest atheist. He's a nice guy. But the moment our evangelistic objective is to, is to persuade people to be nice, healthy, friendly, well-informed, law-abiding church members, something is missing. If, if, we, if we examine ourselves and, and take note of what is conveyed, what is the message, what is the, what is the call, what is the appeal... If we're not careful, our practice can be rather uninspirational. Something is lost, uninspiring. We say what we believe, we say how we are different, and then we accept some sort of behavior response to what is being said. 
And that's why a person will sometimes hear a sermon that closes with an appeal, and they'll say, you know, I heard all the bullet points. I got all the proof text. I got all that down. I heard the content that was transferred over to me. I heard it all, but it just doesn't feel right. And consequently, there's no commitment, no, no decision is made. And I wonder, has prophetic preaching also become uninspirational for the same fundamental reason? That we don't start with the prophetic why. Oh, we, we, we articulate all the facts and data and details and timelines and dates and so on and so forth. But, but has it become something that has not inspired the heart? We proclaim the right prophetic content, but it's a message that is considered irrelevant to life in this world. Why? Why would our proclamation solicit that kind of response? You see, people will understand vast amounts of complicated information, like facts and dates, but it doesn't drive behavior. It, it, it's content that's transferred from the communicator, from the source, through the device, or through the lecture, into our minds, into our brains, into our knowledge and understanding. But it doesn't drive behavior. It's just the way the human mind is wired. Uh, the part of the brain called the ne neocortex, which is about 8% of the brain's total mass, it corresponds with the what level, with the what. That's where we process what we hear. We process the, the facts, the figures, the dates, the bullet points. We take lots of notes. That's, that's stimulating the neocortex. But then there's the limbic brain. The limbic brain is, is what's responsible for all our feelings, like trust and loyalty. It's what compels us to commit, to devote ourselves. Devotion finds its source from this part of the brain. It's also responsible for all decision-making. It's one thing to collect data and have all the information to make an intelligent decision, but that's not the neocortex brain that does that. It's the limbic brain. And so when we communicate about the why, the very heart of the matter, when we communicate the, about the why, we're talking directly to the limbic brain. And in doing so, it satisfies our longing and yearning for certainty. Examine the scriptures. Jesus was a master of this. He did it all the time. Just ask Nicodemus. Ask the Samaritan woman. You'll see that Jesus appeals straight to the limbic brain. It's where conviction is born and consequently a commitment or decision is made. Take a modern example. A modern example. Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., for instance. He, he didn't go around telling people that needed, that America, what needed to change in America. He, don't, he didn't go around saying, this needs to change and that needs to stop. Believe me, there were plenty of things that needed to change. But if you listen to his presentations, to his communication, to his sermons, you'll discover, you'll discover 
that he did not go around telling people what needed to change. As I said, lots need to change. In southern counties, blacks could not vote. They could not go to all-white beaches, restaurants, hotels. Even schools were segregated. Buses, the front ten seats were reserved for white people at all times. So what did Dr. King do? You know what he did? He went around and he told people why they couldn't wait any longer. He went around telling people why now was the time to change. Now was the time for change. I believe, I believe, I believe. He talked of purpose. He talked of cause. He talked of core belief. I believe, he told people. And he argued passionately and powerfully that all people are created equal. And people believed what he believed. They took his cause and they made it their own. They, they, they took what was said and they became engaged, passionate. It spoke to the heart and they, in turn, told people. And on August 28, 1963, without the use of social media and smartphones, over 250,000 people gathered there at the Lincoln Memorial in D.C. And how many showed up for Martin, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.? How many showed up for him? Um, zero. They didn't show up for him. They showed up for themselves. It's what they believed about America that got them to travel in a bus for eight hours and stand in the sun in D.C. in the middle of August. Men and women followed, not for themselves, not for him, but for themselves. They not only knew what needed to change, but more importantly, they knew why. And you know what happened as a result? Consequently, a movement was born. And if there's one thing we need to understand about evangelism today in the 21st century. It's that seekers don't simply buy what you believe. Rather, today's seekers, they buy why you do what you do and why it matters. And as intelligent human beings, it's the way God created us. We long, we long for something to believe on, on which to base our loyalty. We long to find something that will give us security. And predictable activities, as been proven, satisfies our craving for certainty. We hunger for something that both informs our reason and appeals to the heart above all. It's what motivates us, compels us, convicts us to respond when God says in Isaiah chapter 1, verse 18, come and let us reason together. Come and let us reason. You notice that he doesn't proceed to, to draw a chart of the 70 weeks to prove how the Messiah was cut off in the middle of the week to bring an end to sins and transgressions. But rather he expounds on why it matters. Isaiah chapter 1, verse 18 tells us, why it matters. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are like red like crimson, they shall be as wool. And that begins to resound with the heart and it gives birth to a response of loyalty and devotion and willing surrender. And did you hear it though? They shall be as white as snow. They shall be. They shall be as wool. They shall be. 
they shall be, enter prophecy. You see, prophecy, in the simplest terms, is a divinely inspired prediction of what shall be in the future, which in turn confirms the accuracy of God's word when it is fulfilled. And if you notice in the teachings of Jesus, in his closing days especially, he emphasized again and again the why of prophecy. This is where Jesus took his listeners. Come with me in your Bibles to John. Would you open your Bibles to John chapter 13? We're going to take a look at a few instances in the life of Christ towards the end of his life where Jesus, where Jesus understands this concept of getting to the why starting with the prophetic why. Why? Because that is what appeals to the heart and calls for conviction, calls for decision, calls for a response. In John chapter 13, verse 19, they're in the upper room. After quoting scripture, and this is pertaining to the identity of, the, of his betrayer, notice what Jesus said in verse 19. Now I tell you before it comes that when it comes to pass you may believe that I am he. A few moments later he picked up a piece of bread and gave it to Judas. In scene 2 in John chapter 14 verse 29 a few moments later uh, Jesus is talking about his departure and the coming of the Holy Spirit and he says and now I have told you before it comes to pass so that when it comes to pass you may believe. And again, a third time in John chapter 16, verse 4. A few moments later, same setting. Uh, he says, but these things I have told you that when the time comes, you may remember that I told you of them. Did you notice? Three times Jesus mentions, so when it comes to pass, so when it comes to pass, so when it comes to pass, you may what? You may believe, you may believe, you may remember. You may believe what? You may believe that there's a God in heaven who declares the end from the beginning so that when it does come to pass, you may know that the word of God is reliable, believing that his word is reliable, hence the reason why we trust him. Remembering what? That we are seeing before our very eyes what was actually predicted a long time ago, revealing that there is a God in heaven who knows the future and he reveals it before it happened, hence the reason why we develop a, a deep, satisfying sense of certainty about our future. But there I was as an adult, a young adult, wondering why I was continuing to be a Seventh-day Adventist. Again, not that I necessarily doubted what I knew, but wondered why it mattered. And so I took my Bible. I remember like if it was yesterday, I took my Bible and I, my Bible and my Bible only. And I went on the biology trails behind Southern's campus. And I went on these long hikes, these long walks, apart from anybody else. And I would fall down on my knees and my prayer was simply two words. Lord, convict me, convict me. And I found myself weeping at times. God, Convict my heart. And I would ask myself, come on, if, if I was tested, if I had to stand up for my faith, if I had to take a bullet for what I believed, would I stand? Would I uphold my beliefs regardless of the cost? And frankly, I was not fully convinced that I would. 
And that troubled me greatly as a PK growing up in the church. I felt like I was committing the unpardonable sin. I was grieving in my heart. I, I felt like I felt sick to my stomach. But I had to confront the hard questions that I needed to ask. God was with me. He was the one asking those questions. Adam, where are you? He wasn't asking because he himself didn't know. He was asking because he wanted to reveal to Adam himself his condition. And there I was receiving a revelation. And I asked, what is the reason for my beliefs and why should I care? And I would not rest until I found certainty of why it mattered. And it was then that God took me on a personal journey, a very intimate journey, where I could say I took ownership of my faith for the first time in my life. It was not mom and dad's faith. It was not the faith of five generations of believers. It was mine. And I knew why, why this was a purpose and a cause and a core belief that I would be willing to stand alone and over 25 years later, my life is still well anchored in genuine faith. As the Apostle Paul wrote in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 14, we must no longer be children tossed to and fro and blown by every wind of doctrine, by people's trickery and by their craftiness and deceitful schemings. <laughs> what, what, what is the bottom line here? If we baptize people just because they agree they understand, they're informed, they agree to abide by the set of principles, by the set of 28 fundamental beliefs without full ownership of their newfound faith. They'll stick around as long as something more enticing and convincing doesn't come around. But if we develop certainty, if we Develop certainty will take a stand and we will not fall though the earth be removed. That's because prophecy answers the question, why? You see, prophecy is not meant to give us control of our own life and destiny. It reminds me that there is a God who is in control. Pro people won't buy what you do. People will buy why you do what you do. Thus, we start with the prophetic why. So why do we as Seventh-day Adventists proclaim prophecy? Seventh-day Adventists proclaim prophecy, why? Because it conveys confidence that the book, the Bible, is a reliable book. And that God is a reliable God who has a plan for the future and it gives us certainty. That is why this movement was born. Seventh-day Adventists proclaim prophecy. Why? Because Jesus said that the writings of the prophets testify of me. Prophecy gives evidence that Jesus of Nazareth is the Christ. That's why this movement was born. Seventh-day Adventists proclaim prophecy. Why? Because we were born as a result of the study of prophecies. We have prophetic roots they give us the reason why we exist. That's why this movement was born. Seventh-day Adventists proclaim prophecy because it's our mission to take it to the ends of the world. The message of the three angels' message must be preached in every nation, tribe, tongue, and people. That's why this movement was born. Seventh-day Adventists proclaim prophecy. Why? Because we have the prophetic gift in our midst, the writings of Ellen G. White. That's why this movement was born. 
Seventh-day Adventists proclaim prophecy because we have a prophetic destiny that goes beyond this world's history as shown by the prophecies of Daniel and Revelation. And that's why we are not just another denomination, but rather a people with a prophetic identity. And friends, as a result of both prophetic and evangelistic preaching, that leads people to understand why, why we exist, why are we here, why were we created, why were we called, why does it matter? The Bible says that as that was proclaimed in Acts chapter 11, verse 24, it says that a great many people were added to the Lord. And what was the Lord doing with them? Acts 2, 24. 47 answers that the Lord added them to the church. <laughs> I find this sequence very, very insightful. Um, the text can be any clearer. The sequence is that simple. We add to the Lord. That's what we do. We add to the Lord, and He in turn adds to the church. Our responsibility is to add people to the Lord. And how does that happen? One of the means is prophetic preaching, the power of prophetic preaching, the power of identifying why we exist, who are we in Christ. When we start with the prophetic why, it compels the heart to respond with loyalty and trust to the Lord. It anchors us, it anchors our faith firmly and not what we know, but who we know. And who we know makes all the difference. You see, Christianity is not about what we do. But it's about who we know. And who we know will change what we do. And when we come to understand the why, there's something within our hearts that burns. It burns within our hearts and what if our driving evangelistic principle was to add them to Jesus? Focus on leading people into an abiding, connected, intimate relationship with him in the context of each distinct doctrine. For each distinct doctrine is but a beautiful stroke of the brush that is painted on this canvas combined with all the various colors produces the beautiful picture of the face of Jesus. And as we respond with loyalty and trust, others will be inspired with us. And when we take this sequence to heart, we will see God transform churches as we do evangelism with the right motives, which is preparing a people to see the face of the Lamb and reign with Him forevermore. The ultimate reason of why we do what we do. We don't have to look too far. There is a people who crave certainty and they must know prophecy. There is a people whose world is a place of hopelessness and fear. They must know prophecy. There is a people who want a promise that they can count on. They must know prophecy. Why? For prophecy, all prophecy, points 
all to the one who alone is faithful, who alone is constant, who alone is our hope, who alone can cast out fear, who alone is worthy. He is the Lamb of God, our Lord God, the King of kings and Lord of lords. And today, as we take time as we have for the last few days and, and for the rest of this conference and even way beyond. As we take time to walk with the Lord, may we all come to that place of intimacy, a place where the will of God and my will merges together as one. Intimacy takes place and consequently, because of this intimacy between God and my heart, new life is conceived. So when Jesus comes in the clouds of heaven, he's coming back for his friends. He's coming back for those that know him and for those he knows who have come to find the ultimate, the eternal answer to the greatest question that all humanity must ask at one point or another, and that is why? Why? May it be Jesus, may it be Jesus, King of kings and Lord of lords, and that will ground us, that will anchor us, that will Establish deep roots that go deep within the heart. So when the time comes and the, word is, the world is in great chaos, when the time of trouble comes and we find ourselves in the midst of a trouble and demonic world, when tribulation comes, we will not be shaken for we will be firmly planted in a belief that is grounded with the conviction that burns deep within my heart. And is that the hope that you have that burns deep within your heart? Can you say today, without hesitation, with full assurance, can you say today that if I needed to stand and to stand alone, though not the popular vote or stance to take, I would do so because I know my Father's heart and I will stand with him no matter the consequences. If that is your prayer, if that's where you want to be, if this is the beginning of a journey that will lead you to that deep, intimate relationship with him and you want it now and you want to reaffirm it, will you stand together with me as we stand and close with prayer?